I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, the first of two episodes of Little Atoms with shortlisted writers from the 2017 Welcome Book Prize. Here's Sarah Moss, David France, and Miley Stakarangol. Sarah Moss was educated at Oxford University and is currently an Associate Professor of Creative Writing at the University of Warwick. She is the author of the novels Cold Earth and Night Waking, which was selected for the Fiction Uncovered Award in 2011, Bodies of Light and Signs for Lost Children, which was shortlisted for the Welcome Book Prize in 2015 and 2016, respectively. And she spent 2009-10 as a visiting lecturer at the University of Iceland and wrote an account of her time there in Names for the Sea, Strangers in Iceland, which was shortlisted for the RSL Ondati Prize 2013. And Sarah's new novel, The Tidal Zone, has been shortlisted again for the Welcome Book Prize in in 2017. So, Sarah, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you. Describe The Tidal Zone for us. What's it about? The Tidal Zone is about... It's a novel of aftermath. It's about how a family falls apart and then puts itself back together after very nearly losing its teenage daughter. So it's about building a new normal in the knowledge of mortality and about living with clever teenagers and about how you pick yourself up and move on after a near-death event. The last two novels that we spoke about over the last two years, Signs for Lost Children and Bodies of Light, were both novels that were concerned with changing gender roles. There was a mother and daughter relationship, or there were one was a sequel to the other. The same mother and daughter relationship passed through both books. This is also a novel about gender roles. This time it's about a stay-at-home father. So why? Let's talk about why you decided to write Adam as the uh, as the protagonist this time. Well, trying to answer that question suggests a much more deliberate process than mine ever is. Um, I mean, I, I didn't think, I know I'm going to write a novel with a stay-at-home dad as the protagonist. It was just kind of how it came out. It probably came out that way because I'm interested in gender roles and because my own experiences of being the working parent while my partner is the stay-at-home parent. But also because the question I get asked most often at literary events is, how do you manage to combine a full-time job with writing books with raising a family? And I always say, well, depending on how cross I'm feeling, I either say, would you ask a man that question? Or I say, it's interesting that men don't get asked that question. And I asked some of my male writer friends if they ever did get asked that question. And they all said, well, they sadly, but no, they never do, although it is a challenge for them juggling childcare and work and writing. But that there's a universal assumption that they have a little wifey and a pinny kind of washing their socks and making their breakfast and packing the school bags and that they're totally uninvolved in family life. And in most cases, that wasn't true. I mean, anybody who's a professional writer is probably at least partly supported by somebody else's work. So male writers are, in my experience, very rarely shot in their ivory tower while somebody else does all the housework. In fact, they are usually very involved parents, cooks, cleaners, bottle washers. And that labour is totally invisible. There's, There's no account of it. You know, occasionally somebody in the media will run some article about some dad who's learned to plait his daughter's hair or how to make a lunchbox or something. But it's always written in a sort of, gosh, I'm such a buffoon. Really, I need to get some girl in to do this sort of way. And that's just not the experience of my generation. Tell us something about Adam then. Who is he? 
Adam is, well, he grew up on a commune, an intentional community in West Cornwall. Um, He lost his mum in childhood. So he was raised primarily by his dad, but with the support of the other adults on the commune. His dad is Jewish American, the son of a couple who, well, they didn't escape the Holocaust because they left much earlier than that, but a couple who were part of that mid-20th century Jewish diaspora. So Adam is carrying a lot of stories and a lot of stories that are missing. He's married to Emma, who is a GP, and he loves her, but he sometimes finds her very difficult. He has two daughters for whom he's the primary carer. He has a PhD, but has never quite worked out how to get into full-time academia. So he's one of those many and necessary people who floats around on the edges on temporary fixed-term contracts, working part-time, doing the teaching that full-time academics often resist. So he has quite a sideways perspective on family life and professional life, and particularly institutions and academia. But you mentioned his father. So so Eli, you parallel his story of um, his moving between various communes with this story as well. And although we could say that Adam had an unconventional life being the stay-at-home father, but compared to his own father, his home life is very conventional, isn't it? Yes, yes. And I think one of the things I'm interested in is children who are more conservative than their parents. But that obviously is not reflected in, in Miriam, Adam's daughter, who I want to talk about next. So tell us something about Miriam. I'm very fond of Miriam. Yeah, she's great. <laughs> Miriam is a really bright, politically alert, astute, well-read teenager who is not letting anybody get away with anything. She has the devastating competence of clever teenagers in perceiving and dissecting her parents' motives. I really admire that kind of mid-late teenage mood in which they see with perfect clarity, they see the world very, very well and in a kind of well-informed and adult and intelligent way, except that they have no experience of compromise or grey areas or what you might have to do to get by. And I think that's hugely valuable, that kind of driven, pure ideology that adults just don't have. I mean, by the time you've made the compromises you need to make to have a job and a house and a relationship and to be able to cope with the fact that we live in England and some people live in Syria and all the other things that we have to cope with, you've lost something. There's there's a lot of loss there and teenagers, some teenagers still have it. And the ones I teach at Warwick often have it and... Some of my own kids' friends have it. And I wanted to write that kind of teenager because, again, I wasn't really seeing them. I mean, people talk about teenagers as if they're just glued to their phones and kind of hopelessly narcissistic. And that's really not my experience. So Emma, who's who's the mother, is quite quite a vague presence in the book, isn't she? Yes. She's mostly at work. Emma is a GP. She is working extremely hard, almost intolerable hours under almost intolerable conditions. She's absolutely committed to her work and to her patients, not very good at looking after herself, and perhaps partly because Adam does it, not always very good at looking after her family. She's the daughter of a medical consultant and a fairly high-powered mother and is kind of driven by inadequacy in that regard. And then... Rose, who's the the second daughter, let's fill out the uh, the quartet of the family. Tell us something of Rose. Rose just wants a cat. Rose doesn't really understand what's happened to Miriam. It keeps being explained, but she's not terribly interested. She just wants everything to go back to normal. She has her own interests and agenda and is not quite old enough to have properly sorted out empathy or recognition of other people's versions of the world. She's inadvertently quite funny, but she just wants her own life to be ordered again. And you mentioned something happens to Miriam. So what happens to Miriam is idiopathic exercise-induced anaphylaxis. So tell us what that is. That is where a person goes into anaphylactic shock in response to the combination of some unknown substance, um, probably something that they've eaten or swallowed, but it could be an insect bite or something inhaled and exercise. So it's only the combination of the unknown substance and exercise that does it, but it can be very, very difficult to find out what that substance is. So if somebody has had it once if they've gone into anaphylactic shock they're at permanent risk of doing so again and if you can't work out what the problematic substance is all you can really do is equip them with an EpiPen and send them out to get on with it which is what happens to Miriam. So why let's talk about why you why you chose this particular condition for Miriam where did it come from is this something you have experience of or just something you came across in research? 
No, nothing at all. Nothing I have any experience of. I had to do a lot of research. I wanted something that strikes out of the blue and might happen again. And I wondered about a car accident, but a car accident is almost always somebody's fault. And it's a risk that we know about. I mean, every time we get in a car, we know that we're taking a risk. And I wondered about war or terrorism, but of course, they come with their own political charge that I didn't want in this novel. I wanted something that just arbitrarily hits you and changes your life in a matter of seconds and that might happen again and you don't know when it might happen again or under what circumstances and then you just have to live with it because that's actually an exaggerated version of the reality that all of us live with and don't think about and once I started thinking about it there are so many near misses in the course of a perfectly ordinary life. I mean, while I was writing this book, we were driving somewhere on the motorway and were about five minutes behind quite a nasty pile-up. And it was fine. You know, we stopped and we sat on the motorway for a long time and the kids got angry and I kept pointing out that it would be a lot worse if we'd been six minutes further ahead and they should just be grateful we weren't. It, it was a completely ordinary experience of a long family drive on a motorway. But I kept thinking, if I hadn't gone back to get my climbing boots we probably would have been six minutes ahead or, you know, if I hadn't been stopped at two traffic lights when we were getting onto the motorway. And there was another day I was out running and I was running along a country road with the music too loud, which you're not supposed to do, but I like it. And I swerved to go around a puddle and glanced over my shoulder as I swerved rather than before. And there was an electric car probably going 40 miles an hour right behind me. And I leapt into the puddle and swore and he did an emergency stop and swore and everybody was fine. And, you know, I went on with my run. But these things happen the whole time and we don't notice them and we don't think about them. So I wanted a kind of extreme amplified version of that and to widen that out this is a contemporary novel it's a sort of state of the nation novel although contained within you know a very small space but while the precariousness is this precariousness is introduced into this formerly relatively secure family we can also see the sort of hints of the wider precariousness of society things are going on obviously you talk about you know syria and things and and political events and house prices and stuff and all of that is sort of brought in as well yes yes because that's where we are and it's also a novel about the nhs yes well you can't really write about contemporary sickness in the uk without writing about the nhs but i am interested in it it seems the nhs carries so much meaning for all of us i think probably what was it david cameron i think it's one of the truer things a tory politician has ever said that the nhs is the national religion it's so it's where politics is in our own bodies it's where we so intimately feel what goes on in westminster i mean if you know if my knee hurts when i get off the train it's because i've been doing too much running but i'm no better than to bother my gp with knee pain that results from too much running or if somebody's going around with headaches that they've had for weeks it's where yeah, it's where politics is inside you in the most intimate way. And of course, you know, it's not a, a rosy picture of the NHS either. Although Miriam's taken care of, we also see that Emma is massively overworked. Yeah, it's a picture of the NHS in which the work gets done, but at enormous cost to the people doing it. And you also, I wanted to talk about the, the narrative you weave in, which is Adam's research. He's, um, he's, you mentioned he's a, you know, he's a sort of part-time academic. His, his specialisation is the arts and crafts movement, but he's, he's embarking on a project to study the rebuilding of Coventry Cathedral. Tell us something about that. Well, Adam's department has got a grant to do a project about the rebuilding of Coventry after the war. And as tends to be the way with these things, a condition of the grant is that they produce something that, that involves public impact that's judged by the Research Council to be accessible to the public, which, as Adam says, means dumped down in digital. And he's been employed to do that bit. It's the bit that none of the researchers really wants to do. So he's trying to write a kind of accessible history of Coventry Cathedral, which will be available um, by geolocative media. So a, a thing that people can download on their phones and listen to as you say the sort of thing that the people who actually want to visit a cathedral would never want to listen to and the people that would listen to that sort of thing would never want to visit a cathedral precisely yes but that's how research funding works these days so at the same time as miriam is well in cardiac and respiratory arrest and then recovering adam is comforting himself by doing little spurts of work on this project and they're very different scales of thing I didn't want in any way to suggest that nearly losing one child is in any way comparable to losing a city but one of the things that fascinates me about Coventry Cathedral is its status as a model for moving on after trauma I mean it sits there next to the ruins of the old cathedral which was bombed in the Blitz 
And there's such an interesting problem about what you do with bombed holy places. And different bits of Europe came to different answers to that. In, in Dresden, you rebuild it exactly the way it was, as if it never happened. Um, there are bits of London still where there are bombed out churches just left as monuments. But then you have to live with your loss in front of your eyes all the time. Or you take the Coventry solution, which is to leave the old thing as a place of remembrance, but to build something new right next to it that talks to it. So I think for everybody who sees those buildings, one of the things that we're being offered is a model for living with and living after trauma. And I was interested in the way the architecture could offer some kind of inspiration, even to somebody who has no religious faith and doesn't experience it as a holy place necessarily. Just to finish off then, this is the third year running that you've been shortlisted for the Welcome Book Prize. Every time we've spoken about it, I've said, you know, how does it feel to be nominated? There must be a sort of, I don't know, it's both amazing to be nominated for the third time, but also always the bridesmaid feel of it as well. There is a bit of that. I'm trying and I hope succeeding in being gracious about it. I mean, it is a great honour to be shortlisted. I'm in extremely good company and I'm honoured to find myself in that company. As always, good luck. Thank you. (laughs) So I've been talking to Sarah Moss. We've been talking about the Tidal Zone, which is is out from Grant to Books and is, is shortlisted for the 2017 Welcome Book Prize. Sarah, thanks so much for telling me about it. Thank you. I'm Emily Mayhew, you're listening to Resonance FM and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. David Franz is the author of Our Fathers, The Secret Life of the Catholic Church in an Age of Scandal, which Showtime adopted into a film. He is a contributing editor to New York magazine and has also written for the New York Times. His documentary, How to Survive a Plague, was a 2012 Oscar nominee, won a Director's Guild Award and a Peabody Award, and was nominated for two Emmys, among other accolades. And it's also now a book, How to Survive a Plague, the story of how activists and scientists tame AIDS, which has also been shortlisted for the 2017 Welcome Book Prize. David, welcome to Little Atoms. It's great to be here. Tell me, first of all, how the book develops the story you told in the film. The book is, it takes a different approach to the epidemic years, and it's much broader. It's a witness account of the arrival of this kind of mysterious new disorder and the activism within the community and amongst researchers and clinicians as they try to tackle a disease that's being both ignored and and almost fomented by public policy uh, that refused to address the epidemic as a kind of a public health problem. Um, So it picks up in 1981, which happens to be the year that I moved to New York. So I, I narrate our way into the story and then tell the the history as I saw it and witnessed it over those years as I was functioning as a journalist in those times. Well, you say as a witness as well, it's also a much more personal story than the film. Well, it is. You know, I felt that it was important to tell the reader who the witness was. And I wasn't entirely uh, detached from the epidemic, although I was working, you know, with the tools of journalism, the kind of detached tools of journalism. I was very much engaged in the epidemic in my private life as a gay man living in New York uh, whose friends were getting sick and eventually whose lover took ill. And you say you've been reporting on AIDS from the very beginning, but in in those early days, you sort of got into journalism in an unorthodox way. So tell me how that got started. Well, you're right that I had never studied journalism or intended to be a journalist. I was studying for my PhD in philosophy, actually, um, with the idea that perhaps I would teach. And I abandoned that when AIDS became such a pressing issue in 1981, 1982. And I felt called upon, as I think everybody did who was in the community and watching this happen, to do something, to take an assignment. And I knew that I was not a, I didn't have a great bedside manner and that I wouldn't be a, a great help in that regard. Although many people really heroically stepped up to do that when even in those first moments, it was believed that it was putting them at peril, but they were showing up for sick people. They were 
They were, you know, washing the, the weak bodies of the sick. They were taking what, in the long run, we now know were not risks necessarily, but at the time, were it took a great amount of bravery to tackle the the human aspects of the epidemic. So I had a kind of a natural nosiness and felt that I could put myself to the task of trying to find answers, uh, trying to decode the world of science and medicine and research and pharmacology in a way that might allow me to to bring news to the community that might have life-saving power. Um, So although I, I also had absolutely no aptitude in the area of science, I felt that that's where the answers would eventually develop. And that's um, that's the assignment that I gave to myself. So my very first pieces were about the science as we knew it. And uh, and then I watched that science develop over the years and eventually became uh, a reporter in the science field. And of course, the scientific story that you tell here, I mean, there's two parallel paths. Obviously, there's a more official research path and then also the, the path of the activist that we'll, we'll talk about, which follows a, a much more unorthodox path. But before we get on to that, it's the early 80s, 1981, 82, as you say, you know, suddenly this relatively new, unfamiliar disease starts appearing, particularly on the streets of New York. Remind us what the political atmosphere at the time was because it's difficult from the, the modern perspective to remember how hostile that atmosphere was so there's reagan in the white house uh ed carter's the the mayor of new york what did it feel like at the time well there was also the rise of the religious right um it was the um the, the arrival to kind of national politics of kind of christian activists uh for the first time and um, and there was a movement based in Florida that was run by a Miss America contestant, Anita Bryant, that was uh, charging across America trying to save the children of America from the homosexuals of America. So there's a lot of demonizing going on. And it was um, it was a fierce backlash to the early LGBT rights movement that started in 1969. So by 1979, the backlash was in full power. And then just two years into that came this epidemic. And we, so we were embattled on a political front to begin with. Homosexuality was illegal in nearly half of the country. And there were very few uh, municipalities that had adopted any sort of protection for uh, the rights of gay people. Um, so we were, we were very isolated. We were very disenfranchised. We were very embattled. And we had come to a kind of a feeling of, you know, we were in a defensive posture and moving into pockets of cities, mostly on the coast, that we claimed as ghettos and had a, a kind of a modicum of freedom there. Uh, but outside of those pockets, you know, it was not likely that if you were openly gay, you would you know, do well in your career, for instance. Um, by 1981, there was only one openly gay journalist uh, working for you know, the recognized mainstream press in the country. And uh, he was very isolated. There had been only one uh, major elected official who was openly gay, and he'd been assassinated. Um, so the writing on the wall was already bad. And then when the disease struck, it was used by those political forces as a way to kind of um, offer proof of what they were saying. You know, they, they thought science had, had uh, vindicated their worldview against homosexuals, gay people, gay sex. And so there was a kind of almost a celebratory reception. Um, there was a, a cheering in certain circles, and the majority of the country, there was there was just no concern whatsoever for the the toll that it might be taking on a population which they felt was uh, responsible for anything that befell it. Let's talk about the beginnings of ACT UP and some of the activists that you, you profile in the book, people like Spencer Cox, Peter Staley. I mean, my question was going to be, why was it necessary? But I mean, we've just been talking for the past five minutes of why it was obviously necessary politically. But what did they do? Well, the politics was key because, you know, in the very first report of the disease, there were 41 known cases. And had those cases been addressed as though they were uh, uh, presenting a p- kind of a public health challenge, the first thing that might have happened would be a containment effort, a, a, an effort to prevent the spread of a disease. And that never came into place. It took a number of years for us to realize that what was going on politically and diplomatically 
a studied and purposeful neglect of the the early cases and a stain, as I said before, for the people who are getting the disease and a belief that it was just this kind of almost divine punishment for this uh, unacceptable vice, as it was considered. So there was no money coming. There was no research happening. There was no anything happening. And so by 1984, 1985, it started to become really plain to us that this medical disaster was a political disaster. And that's where activists like Larry Kramer began to focus their work um, on trying to gain access to the power structure in some way to convince people that it was time to respond to this scientifically. There was no purchase. They were making no progress there. And uh, in 87, now six years into the epidemic, and already tens and tens of thousands had died of the disease, there was just a roiling anger uh, within the community that was affected by it. And, and suddenly, a refusal to simply die, to die without uh, making a, you know, a, a real issue of our deaths. And that's, that was the formation of ACT UP. ACT UP was really, it was an attempt to put our suffering on the public stage make people pay attention. And, um, and it, it soon became clear that the first task or the first challenge for the movement, uh, if AIDS activism by now had become its own movement, was to convince the American people that gay people were human beings and they were deserving of you know all the, the things that human beings were deserving of. The very humanity of the gay person had to be established. And that's what ACT UP took on to begin with. They knew that they needed to be seen as human by politicians and by researchers or nothing was ever going to happen. And they did it through initially through kind of angry demonstrations and then by capturing a kind of the tools of marketing and the tools of media. And they won access to, you know, television sets throughout America. They staged demonstrations that were colorful enough that they were covered. And there suddenly were images of young and, and often handsome people who looked like your next door neighbors, who looked like your own children maybe, who were staging protests in front of the Food and Drug Administration demanding pills. And the idea that pills might be kept from such normal looking people helped in kind of the marketing of this demand for empathy. And ultimately began a conversation with, you know, the everyday Americans um, who up until 1987 had the, the, uh, fully embraced the idea that homosexuality was wrong and immoral and repugnant. And the majority of Americans believed it should be illegal. The majority of doctors, American doctors in 1987 still believed they shouldn't have to treat people with AIDS. And if given the chance, they wouldn't. Something like 63% of physicians by 1987 were still avoiding the AIDS patient. And that's what began to change in the early, early days of ACT UP. And that brand of kind of this grassroots social justice activism around the epidemic. And once they began a conversation with kind of a human to human conversation with the people at the levers of power, they realized that those people had really no idea about what needed to be done or how to get there. And that was disheartening, but it also sparked in them the idea that they were going to have to help. And if ACT UP has kind of a, an important place in the canon of human history, it's that it was the first time that a patient population ever took it upon itself to become full partners in research in the race for drugs that might save their lives. And going along at the same time as this, there is obviously, you know, there's a more mainstream scientific establishment that's doing research and there's a lot of disagreement in that. And there, you know, there becomes sort of breakaway movements within mainstream science as well. And you talk in the book about, you know, the American Medical Foundation, which is set up by people like Joe Sonnabend. But I particularly at this point, in terms of the more mainstream medicine, wanted to talk for a moment about a woman, Iris Long, who comes out as one of the, the amazing heroes of this book. She is fascinating. She's like the deus ex machina of this movement, really. She's, she was a PhD a pharmaceutical scientist uh, with a failed career, a working class woman who put herself through night school to get her degree with a dream of joining her intellect to the challenge uh, facing research in the area of compound sugars. And her specific area was nucleoside analogs. Why that attracted her, even she can't say, but it's where she tracked. And getting, landing her degree finally in midlife, 
she was not able to get a job in her field. And in fact, wasn't able to get any job. Her career never really launched itself. And uh, in 1987, actually in 1986, the, the drug AZT was being developed and there were good uh, anecdotal reports coming out of the laboratories around the country, all of which we were publishing in the gay presses because it was the first time we had a pill that seemed to, uh, to suggest any sort of possible benefit for people who five and six years into their infection still had not uh, received any such hope. And so she read about AZT which is a nucleoside analog, and she felt that she maybe had another opportunity to exercise her education. She brought out the AIDS establishment. She went to the various organizations in New York City that were working around AIDS. Um, none of them saw much potential in her, and uh, even those places where she went as a volunteer, they tracked her in, in directions that uh, were not helpful for her and were not taking full advantage of what she could offer. She was sent into the clippings room, the library at the American Foundation for AIDS Research, where she was asked to clip you know, articles from the mainstream press and put them into file folders for future researchers to look for. And uh, when she heard about ACT UP, she went to the first meeting and she felt somehow embraced by the people of ACT UP, and, um, which is, was kind of awkward at first. She's, a, I said, a work, working class woman, but also a, a heterosexual woman from the outer boroughs of New York City. She had a very strong accent from her native borough of Queens. And she dressed in a very non-fashionable way and act up in its campaign to, to grab the tools of marketing, marketed themselves in a way. They, they made themselves telegenic. They made themselves uh, ready for the nightly news. They were fashion-oriented. A lot of them came from fashion. A lot of them came from the world of marketing, so they knew how to do those things. And they looked at this, this awkward and um, stylishly dressed woman uh, with some surprise when she first showed up. She also had a true lack of erudition. And people didn't really know what she was talking about at first, and but they listened or tried to understand. And what they discerned ultimately was that she was that she knew the language of science. She knew how drugs were developed. She knew where to get information about how drugs were developed, and she knew what the drug trial system was like and how to understand it. She had read and written drug trial protocols herself, and she was making all of this knowledge available to people. And she um, she ultimately formed a committee that was joined by uh, a handful of people, mostly people with HIV infections. Not one of them had any scientific background. And she, she brought them through a kind of a boot camp study in how to understand the uh, institutions and how they worked and how they might one day be able to offer them some good news. And she created this kind of elite team of citizen scientists without ever having set about on a plan to do that, but she felt useful and that was important to her. And she stayed uh, with the activists right through, working day and night for no money like everybody else in trying to conquer the system, trying to knock the doors down at Big Pharma and at the uh, National Research Centers and push their way in to have a, a detailed conversation with researchers, researchers about what it was that they needed, how to engage the patient population to make them you know, active in this, in this uh, campaign and might make this campaign go faster. It didn't help that in the early days of mainstream scientific research into AIDS, the route that they actually took in the research wasn't likely to help sufferers. Well, it was, it was likely to help in the very, very long run, but it was, they were going for gold. Every researcher uh, that was engaged in AIDS research at the time was trying to find a way to knock out HIV. Um, and that would have great rewards, both for their careers, the potential for say, a Nobel Prize, uh, a big money for their companies, and uh, kind of market share control. But it, it was way down the line. Um, and a much easier area of research, according to the patient population, the much more urgently needed area of research, which was how to, how to keep the patients alive. And, and they knew, and all the data pointed to it, that what was killing people was not HIV, but the the 24 opportunistic infections that took hold because of the depleted immune system. And they were not brand new infections. They were well-known infections. Some of them we knew how to prevent, and some of them just needed the attention of science and the pharmaceutical industry to find ways to prevent and to treat. And nobody was working on that. And that was the first demand that they brought to those researchers was, do research on things that are actually going to save our lives. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Gaia Vince, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. And so the book basically tells the story of activists working to make their own cure, make more effective drugs, more cost-effective drugs. You talk about how you mentioned AZT, but obviously there's, it turns out that there's a lot of problems with AZT. Now, obviously, we've got a, you know, a whole better range of, of treatments. And so that group of activists went from living under a death sentence to suddenly getting, you know, a, a reprieve and, and suddenly having a life ahead of them. A lot of them then struggled to deal with that, not least because everybody involved in that movement had lost a generation of friends. Absolutely. And, and they spent 15 years fighting with no expectation of survival for themselves. They didn't do those things that you do when you uh, build the foundation for, you know, a long life. They, um, you know, they didn't finish their educations. They didn't make plans for a career. They didn't, you know, they, they lived in a very constricted view of, of, of potential and possibility. And, and when suddenly presented with this ongoingness, this, this idea that there was tomorrow and next month and next year, and they they weren't able to see the future the way the way people who never have lived like that automatically learn to see that long distance. So they had you're right they had this unprocessed grief for all next to and and loss, uh, but also this kind of this um, stunted um, ability to imagine tomorrow. And those two things combined created a, a kind of a powder keg for many of them. some of the, the major players in AIDS drug development um, fell almost immediately into drug addiction and other uh, emotional and psychological problems following the reprieve that happened in 1996 when the new drugs came out. And, um, and that included even some of the researchers, even some of the clinicians. But certainly a, a large number of the, the forward troops in AIDS activism fell into a kind of depression and, um, and addiction cycle that, that haunted them still today. Obviously, it would be foolish to, you know, to, to underestimate AIDS, but to a certain extent, it's been brought under control in the developed world. But it's obviously, you know, it's a global pandemic. What more can be done to, to help the developing world deal with it? Well, you know, we know so much about prevention these days. Um, 
and uh, and and it just takes money and political will to get that information out. We know we have pills that are near miracles in giving people with HIV infection the potential for a, a near normal lifespan. And yet still half of the people in the world with HIV will never have access to those pills and will die of old AIDS. They'll die, you know, in a number of months after their first episode of opportunistic infection, just the way we were dying in the 80s and early to mid 90s. So it, it remains a deadly epidemic, although the idea of it being uh, a plague is, uh, is in the past. And, and we get overly comforted, I think, by that. That, uh, that we have these pills, but the, the, the amount of activism that's going to be needed, and I think this is especially true now with the change of, of government in the, in the United States, the, uh, the already we're seeing a budget slashed for, uh, for aid on many fronts in the developing world, and especially in the area of healthcare, which is going to happen both globally and domestically. The challenge will be how to get access to those pills and how to um, maintain access that we already have and expand access so that they reach the people who need them. I think we can never hear enough. You know, it's an impossible question to answer, really, but I wanted to talk about you know, how many people roughly now have died from AIDS over the past you know, 30 years or whatever since it's, since it's been prevalent. Obviously, you know, a lot of deaths are not recorded. But you say we don't tend to think of it as a plague anymore. But when we talk about those numbers, that's what it seems like. The numbers are huge. You know, we, there's some 80 or 85 million people worldwide have contracted HIV. Half of them have died. And those numbers are just extrapolations because we don't have, you know, census takers in many parts of the world where the disease is, is taking a great toll. And also the numbers don't go up every year, although we know or, or think we know that 2 million new people die every year of the disease. The, the number that we track or that's tracked for us by the World Health Organization of the death toll doesn't increase by 2 million every year. So it's just all guesswork. And that's, that's even true in the developing world. You know, we don't, we have, for example, in my city, 100,000 from, from AIDS. But that doesn't track everybody, and it only counts the people who died with a diagnosis. It only counts the people um, who died and their family and uh, physicians agreed to report the diagnosis to authorities and instead of covering it up, which happens so often, in order to save the family from the political backlash and shame of those years. So we, we don't really know how badly we were hurt by AIDS and will be hurt still and in the future, except to know that it's one of our deadly plagues, and it's likely to burn on for many, many more years. Just one final question then from me, David. What does it mean for you that the book has been shortlisted for the Welcome Prize? Well, you know, I think I'm probably um, a very unusual uh, person to to have a book on that list because I I come to science with such a uh, from such a uh, an unusual background and uh, and it's certainly nothing I ever would have expected. Um, but I, I I think that it it in some way endorses the campaign that the characters in my book, these, these, uh, these great heroes, uh, took me on through all those years. And they, they're the people who taught me how to explain science to the world uh, and how to see the human, uh, the, way, the places where science and humanity interact. And it's on that blade that I based the book, looking at really the, the impact of science on the least of us. And, um, and you know, for that, I, I owe them a great thanks, uh, many of whom, as, as you noted, have, have not lived long enough to see, you know, how their, how their work has been perceived and how history will remember them. Um, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just truly honored to be one of the people trying to keep their stories alive. So I've been talking to David France, and we've been talking about How to Survive a Plague, the story of how activists and scientists tamed AIDS, which is, as I mentioned, shortlisted for the Welcome Prize 2017. David, thank you so much for sharing it with me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm Simon Ings. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
Mylise de Kerengal is the author of several novels and short stories. Naissance d'un pont, translated here as Birth of a Bridge, won both the Prix Franz Hessel and Prix Medicis in 2010. Her fifth novel, Repara la Vivance, was published in 2014 and won the Grand Prix RTL Lyra and the Student Choice Novel of the Year from France Culture and Telerama. And that book is translated into English by Jessica Moore as Men the Living. And Men the Living has been shortlisted for the 2017 Welcome book prize and um, which is what we're going to be talking about today my lease welcome to little atoms thank you very much can you describe men the living for us a uh, heart transplant it is a 24-hour novel which which describe and which takes in charge the migration of a of the organ from the body of a young teenager simon who died after a session of surfing, and then from from his body to the body of uh, Claire, uh, who is a translator. And uh, I tried to describe uh, what was this act about, I mean, on philosophical view, anthropological view, but also a narrative view, like it's both like a metaphysical thriller, perhaps, you know, you can follow all the all the trajectory of the organ from a body to another body and what all the person and action and all the pupils which are involved in this action, in this heart transplant. And I wanted to talk about, first of all, the narrative voice of the novel, because it's a third person narration, but not an omniscient one in that while the narrator enters the heads of the characters it's not necessarily knowing all information because for instance like right at the beginning there's the the crash of the van the narrator says they can't actually say for sure what happened why the accident happened for instance yes you're right narrative voice uh, he's not completely omniscient it's it was important for me that this voice was very close to the action, close to the story and close to the character. So sometimes the narrative voice insert comes into the story and says something which could be uh, said sideways. You see what I mean? It means that uh, sometimes the, the voice gives gives another point of view uh, which can disturb the, the line of the story and create some perturbation. But also, you know, it's not, for me, it was very important that this voice could be a subjective one and sensitive one. And this was, with this voice can go everywhere, but this voice choose everywhere it goes. You've already mentioned that, that you know, really this this the story of, the heart of of Simon's heart and and what happens to it. Simon Limbaugh, as as his name is in the in the English translation, is I mean I'll say the main character, but he's you know dead within the first few pages of the novel, but is then present obviously throughout the novel, and it is the story of of him as well of as well as his heart. So I want to talk about a number of the I'll ask you to tell us something about a number of the characters that his his life his body his heart passes through but say something about Simon first of all who is he Yes in fact in this novel there are many characters because all many people are uh, many persons are involved in this action of transplantation but in my story i'm trying to build a collective of character an organic collective of character and in fact there is no principal character non-character takes power onto the others you know so they are treated quite equally but simon the first one has a special place because is a young uh, surfer, is a young teenager, and in the first scene, it is is uh, present, is shown to the reader as emerging uh, from a wave, from a big wave, and is very uh, connected to his uh, sensation, to the feeling of being alive, is in the 
powerfulness of his youth, in fact, and completely alive, completely emerging in the sensation of being alive with the wave, with the sea, and also with the friendship he shared with the other boys who are his friends. But after, you're right, he died, but after, as you said, he will be here during all the book as a radiant presence in the center of the book, like the epicenter of the book, because all the story, all the fiction is centered by his body. The parents, the doctors, the surgeons, the nurses, the, all the persons are going to converge towards uh, his body and is for me the radiant center of the book. This young boy lying in a bed uh, which seems to be sleeping but which is as a brain death in fact. And this uh, vision, this picture was very important for me. It was for me like a, like a warrior uh, fold at uh, fall in life, fall of, like a Greek person, a Greek hero. Yes, indeed. I wanted to talk about the significance of the names of the characters and in doing so talk about some of the other characters because, I mean, you just mentioned that you see Simon as almost like a, you know, a, as a character out of Greek classicism and there are some other characters so there's you know there's a Virgil a Juliet there are other sort of characters with classic names all of the characters in the novel their names are significant aren't they yes you're completely right in fact their names means much means a lot means a lot for me they are meaningful because uh, I think I have I was uh, when I was thinking about this book I was thinking of a tragedy you know it was for me like a contemporary tragedy like a tragedy of today but like a tragedy inverse yeah, I mean we instead of uh, finishing the, the tragedy by death uh, like in all classical tragedies we are beginning enter into the story by death and uh, we are finishing it by life so for me it was a tragedy and Juliet is connected to Shakespeare and also Cordelia these are names uh, which are very connected to, for me uh, with uh, the meaning of the tragedy classical ones and also Virgil and uh, but there is a strong background of classical tragedy in my book because you have one time uh, you need the three unities of are, are present unity of time, 24 hours, the unity of action, I mean, it's a transplantation, an organ transplant, and the unity of a, a place, I mean, it's the hospital. And I was thinking that the names should be connected also to this background. The first medical person we meet in the book Pierre Revol, who is a uh, an anaesthetist in the um, in the intensive care unit, who first comes on duty and receives Simon after the accident. Um, his name Revol suggests revolution, and in the book you have him born in 1959, which is a revolutionary year in medicine, and there is a change in definition in that year. Tell us about that. Yes, it's very important. It's uh, it's a cri the crisis of the book because Revol is revolution and it's also uh, I mean flying again in revolé like revivre in fact also. And um, in 1959 in France, two persons very important, two professors, two doctors, Maurice Goulon and Pierre Molaret, they have redefined the the legal uh, death. I mean before the them before their uh, statement it was said that the hurt the beating of the of the heart was uh, the mark of the life was a sign of the life someone was alive his his heart was beating but after that these people uh, they have observed and defined and uh, the concept the conception of coma of uh, i mean what we can call uh, brain death and their work as authorized as uh, is completely linked to the possibility of doing organ transplant because if the 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 definition of the state this state of i mean what we call brain death it's a state between death 
and life, and this state of the body, this status of the body, can authorize organ transplant. And they observe it, and after that they describe it, and they, in fact they can nearly create that concept. And uh, so in 1959, they, they redefined, we can say that they redefined the days, and the days moved from the, the heart to the brain. So it was that revolution also I wanted to talk about because it's it's very important. You cannot understand uh, what is a organ transplant if you don't have clear uh, vision about what is brain death. Your writing style, you write in long, flowing, beautiful sentences. Tell us something about that choice. Yes, you know, I was trying to follow the thoughts I was trying to be uh, completely connected to the thoughts which were crossing in the story. For example, in the middle of the story, Juliette is in her room and she is thinking about the first time that is her first kiss with Simon when they fall in love. And it is perhaps mean five or six pages, but it is only one sentence because it's one uh, recording and it is one uh, moment, one movement, the movement of love, which is it's like a birth at that time, the movement of love, which is uh, which is rising. For me, it's very connected to a long sentence, which can catch all the totality of the event. I was trying to capture each event in its totality. I mean, in, in the light, in the climate, in the movement, like a choreography of the two persons which who are talking and looking at each other and the love which is emerging in this scene of um, meeting scene, I think. And for me, I focus of that sequence as uh, one uh, mythical scene which had to be told in one sentence, only one. But this sentence could be like a lasso, you know, for a cowboy. It had to be, I mean, very large and um, in order to catch everything, uh, the totality of the event. I was trying to do that in that kind of sentences, which are very long in my book. Just one more question then. I want to ask what it means for you to be shortlisted for the Welcome Prize. But also, this is the first time a novel in translation, a book in translation, has been shortlisted. And I wonder what that means as well. Uh, for me, being translated in English and being a shortlisted on that prize, I, I'm very proud. It's an honor for me. I was I was very very happy, and also um, when I learned that it was the first time a translation book was uh, shortlisted, I was very um, all my my movement was toward Jessica Moore because my book is also a book of what is a translation because for me that's the story of that heart is the migration of that heart from one body to another body for me it's also a question of language and it is also a story of a translation a transfer a translation from a body to another body from and has uh, my book has been translated in another language. I mean, it's another story of transplant. And uh, my as um, the character of the person who, uh, who is a receiver of the of the of Simon's heart, uh, Claire, she is a translator because she has inside his person is uh, inside herself. She has a place for the stranger, for the outsider, for the foreigner, for the person who is coming from the exteriority. And she can give uh, that language and that organ, in that case, uh, hospitality. And for me, it is also a story of translation. So when I, I learned that, uh, that it was uh, the first time one of my books were shortlisted on, on a prize, in literal prize in England, I was very, very proud because it, for me, this is my, the story of my book is very 
close, you know, it's very connected to a story of translation. So I've been talking to Mylise de Carango. We've been talking about Men the Living, which is shortlisted for the 2017 Welcome Book Prize. Mylise, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.